Tom returns. The size of the crowd was completely unbelievable. Tom had never seen even a tenth of the number in any single place. Tens of thousands of people milled, surged, boiled, and cascaded down streets like broken rivers. They changed directions madly, contradictorily, but in strangely consistent patterns like the flights of small birds in high winds. Many of the protesters had curled lips and outthrust jaws and carried bats or sticks or knives or axes. It was medieval. Torches flowed up over the crowd like the bright spurting blood of headless devils. The steam of the crowd's hot breath surrounded the flames, giving the fires a swirling, ghostly base. The voices of the crowd rose and fell. Tom asked every English speaker for the latest news, the safest routes. The rumors flew that the government had brought in tanks and cannons to break up the crowd, and even that airplanes were being flown in from the military airport to strafe the streets. Everyone was ready to be outraged, violated, to enact the blackest acts of vengeance. Cries of horror and rage swept through the crowd. Tom tried to follow them with his mind's eye. He imagined that one man had been injured somehow and howled out, the crowd imagining that this was the first whiff of grapeshot or strafing airplanes or rolling machine guns became panicked and hostile. More and more took up the screams of terror and rage and they swept through the mob which surged to defend the stricken and avenge the fallen. The crushing crowd caused more casualties and it took some time for the crowd to understand that in its zeal to protect life, it was actually taking it. The bodies would become so tightly packed, and this could happen at any time, that Tom sometimes found that he was pressed up against someone who was grievously injured. One lolling face turned, missing an eye. Another man was missing an arm from the elbow down. His face was pale, wrapped. Twice Tom pushed back at bodies squeezing him tight, only to realize with a feeling as if he had received an electrical shock that they were dead men just being carried along. More base hands were also at work, both for material and sexual profit. Tom gave up trying to protect his watch, his wallet, and his genitals at the same time. There was a constant cross-current through the crowd, which is what made it so crushing and insistent. There was always some imagined front where atrocities were being committed and vengeance could be had. The recreational protesters were always trying to get away from these fronts, while the political ones were always trying to get to them. There was, most of all, a sense of invincibility among the crowd. Tom realized why Rousseau had titled his book The Social Contract, because that cold February night, it was clear that here were several tens of thousands of people who simply refused to be ruled. And so, they could not be ruled. It didn't take much. Tens of millions of people in France, tens of thousands, a tenth of a percent, decide to refuse to be ruled, and it all comes crashing down. Government is an illusion of acceptance, thought Tom. Leaders who forget the fragility of their power can destroy the world. At one point, as well, for no particular reason, Tom felt a crashing, catastrophic depression. 
It always hit him in the stomach, opening up a terrifying void over which his heart hung by a mere thread. It was utterly narcissistic, he knew, but Tom could not shake the thought that he was himself somehow the virus. I go to Germany, Hitler gets in. I go to France, society falls apart. I should martyr myself to a desert island for the sake of humanity. But the depression did not last. The thought was just too ridiculous. It helped, though, because it kept Tom free of crowd fever. He was mashed through it, scrabbled above it, and was cast back down, but he never succumbed to it. His lack of French probably helped, but sometimes depression is the only way to combat the tribe. After the depression, though, as it always did, came the anger. Tom caught sight of the gathered soldiers, who looked frightened, frustrated, probably because they must have been given orders not to fire, and exhausted. They suddenly seemed to Tom to be the despair of the failing democracies, which could no longer protect themselves. These fucking communists and fascists, nail them to the fucking wall and see how long the movements last. Defend yourselves! Why are the only certain people in this square the most stupid and belligerent? It is one of the oldest problems of morality, and Tom felt it most keenly on that terrible frozen night. Those who know lack all conviction, those who do not lack all inhibition. Knowledge breeds doubt before it gives certainty. Ignorance is certain to begin with. The ruler seemed to be cowering. The criminals marched without fear. These were corrupt rulers, of course. Tom understood William's story, but even he, sheltered British lad that he was, could tell that this Stavisky affair was just a pretext or the symptom of the same rot which produced the rulers. Neither the government of the Third Republic nor the new totalitarians had any belief in the value of democracy. Those in charge of the ship were just looting it blind because they have no faith that it will last. A democracy capable of defending itself would never have succumbed to that kind of corruption. The two were one and the same. The corruption drew the vengeful crowds. The corruption also blocked any resolute response from the soldiers. Imagine this crowd in Berlin. They would be slaughtered inside of twenty minutes. Hitler rules the Republic hedges and begs. But perhaps the light of democracy is past. Rome fell and the light was out for over a thousand years. It is more of a pleasant interlude than a permanent fixture. The future is ruled by those with the better stories. Hitler has a story. The Marxists and fascists have their stories. Democracy has no more story. Compromise and appeasement is not a story. It is the end of a story. It is the final act of an exhausted tale. Tom's scraps of thought, the last creaks of a caving worldview, were scattered by a monstrous movement of bodies. Before, the crowd had flowed and eddied. Now it surged. No one was trying to get towards the source of the screams. The sound of the mass had changed. It was not toying with insult anymore. Now it was being hacked at, without mercy, without compromise. 
The turnaround was stunning. Tom had taken it for granted that the mob would storm the parliament, murder the politicians, and some sort of gruesome dictatorship would rise over the ancient corpse of majority rule. Everyone moved, despite constant counter-movement inexorably towards the bridge over the Seine. The injured were passed back, fresh bodies moved forward. But some final spasm of resolution seemed to have gripped the government. Wave upon wave of fresh cavalrymen ploughed into the crowd. They did not hesitate. They used their revolvers. They slashed with swords. If dismounted, they fired at anyone around them. They were ferocious and inexorable. And they won. Within the span of ten minutes, the Place de la Concorde began to empty. It was amazing. Tom threw himself into a doorway. He tried the door, but heard hysterical, threatening voices from within, an imagined family in white nightgowns with a shotgun trained at the door. He flattened himself against the wall, turning his toes away from the street, from the pelting bodies, hysterical screams. More than one person sprinting past was giggling madly like a child who wants to be found, and watched the human flotsam empty from the great square almost visibly. He recalled watching an hourglass once, loving the moment when the exit of the sand could be clearly seen from the top. This was just like that. The high-stepping horses thundered back and forth through the crowd. The soldiers lashed people into movement. Everyone still had one destination, but it was no longer towards, which naturally creates bottlenecks, but away, which is a wide-open destination. Within twenty minutes, the square was almost empty. The cavalry officers dismounted and began moving among the wounded. Some began reinforcing the barricades. They seemed quite relaxed, and Tom realized that they feared no more attack that night. He realized that he had been breathing too shallowly for, well, a long time. He took some deep, dizzy breaths, leaning forward, his hand on the doorframe. Then he poked his head out. Getting back to the hotel without being arrested was going to be a problem. Except that it wasn't. The soldiers paid absolutely no attention to him as he crept along trying to hide in the shadows. It was still quite dark, so it was possible that they couldn't see him. But, Tom supposed, they thought the war was over, so there was no point taking prisoners. He stood under the balcony of the hotel where the young woman had been shot only a few hours before. He was about to go in when he was seized by a strong impulse. I have to know where everyone has gone. He ran around the hotel into one of the many side streets. He imagined coming across a wide row of kneeling, long-coated politicos, eyes and muskets gleaming, waving him out of the way so they could charge. Nothing empty. Where the hell did everyone go? They seemed to have melted into the air or the sewers. He thought he caught a glimpse of a group hurrying around a far corner, but it could have been a trick of the darkness. Of course, they don't know they're not being pursued. He recalled the feeling as a child playing tag or capture the flag. You run and run and don't turn around. As his breathing slowed, Tom realized that he was famished. 
Well, today is quite a day of sensations, but it is better to be hungry in France than Germany. The food here might kill you, but it doesn't make you want to kill yourself. When Tom got back to the hotel, he went straight up to William's room. A figure lay on the bed, sniffling. Hurt? Tom jumped up, wiping his face hurriedly. Oh, fuck, Tom, it's you. Of all the people to hide crying from, thought you were William. What happened to you? I got caught up, then lost, then made my way back here. There was no one at the front desk, so I couldn't get a room. I came up here. The door was unlocked. I wanted some scotch. I, I, I poured some. I sat down on her feet. Christ. I screamed, I'm telling you. Drinking with a corpse, fuck me. Tom sat down on the bed opposite Hart. The room was very dark. Oh, wait for the light, whispered Hart. I, I took her downstairs. I'm telling you, it was like being in some goddamn Dostoevsky novel. She rigor mortis or something. Her body was like a bard. It was disgusting. I put her downstairs in a chair like a plank. In a chair? I, I couldn't just leave her lying around. Well, said Tom slowly, I suppose she was just too big to flush. Hart's eyes widened. Tom could see it even in the dark. When did you get so fucking callous? He asked, but he was almost smiling. Tom could tell from the tone. Not our business, said Tom. We're just two Brits too fucking far from home. Yeah, not exactly in the Bedecker. Hart paused. Was it like this in Germany? Yes and no. The madness, yes. Proximity murder, no. I was thinking, was it a bullet from the police or the rioters? Why? What would it know? If it came from the crowd, it was murder from the police? Self-defense? It helps me. <sighs> I went through her purse. Oh, that's not a good idea. Didn't you read All Quiet on the Western Front? She's a... No, heart, said Tom decisively. I don't mean to sound old world and heart hardened, but I don't think that knowing about her will help. But she's... Did you notice her when we stepped out there? Of, of course she... Hart paused, then his shoulders sagged. No. So why try to learn now? Much less reason. Huh? When I was an undergrad, I read some newspaper from 1792. There was a murderer on the docks, some sailor throat slashed ear to ear, and, and at least once a year, maybe more, I think about going back to solve that murder. Or, no, that's not it, more, more like how impossible it would be to ever solve that murder. The trail's a bit cold. Eyewitnesses hard to come by, unsolved, no justice. Maybe it was solved. Hart started to say something, then paused. Oh, I never thought of that. Because there's this woman shot right next to me. I drag her downstairs. Whoever shot her. He waved his hand, his voice catching. Forever unsolved? No justice? No justice? Repeated Tom, staring into the darkness. A silence stretched the space between the young men. Finally, Hart spoke, attempting lightness. So, who won? The government. Good. Back to stealing. More silence. Their ears, so used to screams, slashes, and shots, still rung with the endless echoes of the mob mind. 
Hart, said Tom finally, I need something from you. Hart sighed. You know the answer, Tom? No, this is big. I need you to join the Foreign Office. Pause. Tom. Tom felt a sudden urgency possess him. His muscles went rigid. Do it now! He heard a voice within him shout, or everything is inevitable! Hart, there is going to be a war. Our island will stand alone. We have no defense against this virus, except those of us who know it is a virus. If we don't act, then the virus takes over. Everything will be lost. Us, now, America in a generation. If we don't act, the story of civilization will come to an end. The beasts of all our histories will return and rule, possibly forever. Tom's hands were shaking. He had never felt so energized. France will not stand. They have won tonight, but they will lose tomorrow. Not by force, but somehow they have rotted from the inside. England has some, some kind of strength, some willpower. I have seen it. Churchill, we can see it coming. Not me, that came from Gunther, but some people can see it coming. Reginald cannot, but those who cannot are bringing, making it come. Fuck me, it's too abstract. <sighs> to hell with PhDs. You, you, you can't be a professor for the fascists or the communists. You're not that flexible. No one should be. We have to stand up now, Hart. It cannot happen next year, next month, next... It has to be now. Hart held up his hand wearily, and Tom suddenly felt very afraid. He had always been the dominant one in the friendship, but now, seeing Hart's hand, he realized or remembered that his dominance only came about from Hart's decision to submit. The social contract. The fact that Hart might choose this of all times to assert himself chilled Tom to the bone. Tom, you're going to hate me for this, but you've been spending far too much time alone. You, you sound like those nuts outside. I can't kneel to your soapbox. Tom closed his eyes. He was too sad to cry. Why do you think there will be no war? He asked. But there will be a war. What? Some day, before this world falls into the sun, there will be a war. It might even happen within our lifetimes. But Christ, Tom, don't you think that the Germans have learned their lesson? We won! Barely. It would just be the same damn thing over again. France, England, Russia, America, they'd get crushed. Italy, Japan. Christ, the Italians can't even tie their own fucking shoes, Tom. What are you talking about? The Empire being brought down by Mussolini and a ragged band of ITs? It's going to happen, said Tom, rocking slightly. It's going to happen. Tom, why are you so angry? Something in Hart's tone stopped Tom dead. His very heart seemed to quiver still. What? You think that the world is going to war? Freud 101, you... Are at war with the world. I am not. Uh, am I? It's all the way through your undergrad, Tom. Fuck Marxism, fuck socialism, down with the Fabians. You got kicked out because you couldn't toe the line? Are you so wise that you fight the world on purely intellectual grounds? I'm sorry, said Hart with genuine contrition. I'm really sorry. 
Is it a father thing? A Reginald thing? Your mom? Some teacher? Who turned you so hard against the world? It's not... It's not psychological. I love the world. Yes, and hate its occupants, the two-legged ones. Tom sighed. He felt all the terror and depression in his soul convulse and compress into a dead white fist. Tell me why there will be no war, he said emptily. What would me going to the F.O. do? We would have a view from the inside. You and Churchill? Yes, and Gunther. Is he some father figure to you? Who? Whoever? It's not psychological, cried Tom, his inner pond overflowing with bile. What is the matter with everyone? A mad dictator takes over in Germany, starts rearming, breaks treaties, promises to invade Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and Russia. He murders his oldest and closest friends, and you are asking me about father figures? Jesus Christ, I should let all you children burn! Well, it is a bit messianistic, Tom. Only you can save the world. No! No, I can't! I need you! Hart laughed, shaking his head sadly. Oh, Tom. Let's say Hitler is dangerous. I'm sure he is. But shouldn't we go on with our lives anyway? If I change all my career plans for the F.O., no less, which is a dead duck politically, for fear of Hitler, then hasn't Hitler won? Hasn't fear won? Oh, I hate that goddamned quote, said Tom. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. It's utter crap. We have nothing to fear but a catastrophic depression which brings dictatorship to nation after nation. That fucking woman on the balcony had more to fear than fear itself, like a bullet in her fucking brain. How can you say that the world has not changed? Demanded Tom, jumping up. Paris, four years ago. The city of light, you said. Paris, now. Random bullets, sudden death, riots, murder. Don't you think that the flavor of the world has changed just a bit? And you didn't even go to Germany. Give me some credit, Hart. I know I am asking more than anyone without a great cause has the right to. If I'm wrong, fine, all right. You lose a year or two from your doctorate. But if I'm right, then we save the world. And, and it, it doesn't have to be that long, just a semester. You can make it up. You work like a beaver anyway. Four months. Just be there. Tell me what it's like. Because you are a moral man heart. A good friend. If the F.O. isn't to you what Oxford was to me, no harm done. A few months' diversion to tuck into your CV. Tom strode over to the hanging lamp, turned it on, and yanked at the electrical cord. The lamp swung from the violence of his gesture, bathing the room in swaying light. He turned to Hart, his shoulders hunched. But if I'm right, if Reginald and his crew is in charge of the ship of state during the most dangerous times our island has ever seen, then you have to do something. Come on. You know Reginald. You heard the debate. You know where he will lead us. He'd give the Nazis the key to the city. Appeasement is in his blood. My, my f family's blood. Tom's wild tone slowed, almost stalling. My father with my mother. Me with my mother. Reginald with Wendy, his wife. Hart smiled. And you say it's not psychological. Tom waved his hand. All right. All right. It's, it's partly psychological, but that doesn't make it wrong. He drew his breath in for another harangue, but just then the door burst open and William came staggering in, his face to his hands. Groaning, he sank down on the carpet. 
"'William!' cried Hart. "'Are you all right?' William groaned again, his shoulders shaking. "'God!' he moaned. "'What? Is it your face?' "'God! I've been away from liquor so long I'm starting to get a hangover.' "'You son of a bitch!' said Tom slowly. "'Have you been out there?' cried William, jumping to his feet. He went to the little bar and poured himself a scotch. He drank it, then another. "'Hell shit, Newt Nanny, I've seen calmer stampedes!' "'Your south is showing,' said Tom. "'What if it is?' demanded William. "'I'm going to get a goddamn Pulitzer. "'Running with the bulls? Fuck Hemingway. "'He should try his hand at running with the French. "'What? Everything I've seen tonight, "'I'll have dreams for a thousand years.' His voice rose. Pen for hire! Name your price, but make it big or step aside! He grinned at the young men. I'm gonna check downstairs, said Tom. Maybe someone's got back to the front desk. No, you damn well don't, said William, reaching for him. I set you up, you Brit rubes. Give you the dope, take you out for a trot, sit down and have a goddamn drink. Take your hand down, said Tom, gazing at him. "'You don't return favors," slurred William, his eyes widened in genuine curiosity. "'What kind of man are you?' "'Thanks for your advice,' said Tom. "'Now be a good chap. Take your hand down.' "'Have a drink,' William's voice turned petulant. "'Don't let me be. No!' Tom's face hardened. Heart frowned. It was Tom's rowing face. It won him races. It didn't look as if it would win William anything. You damn limeys have a lot to learn about hospitality. Tom grabbed William's hand and tried to move it off his shoulder. Ah, slurred William, leaning in and tightening his grip. In one fluid move, Tom hurled William away from him. There was a tearing sound, and Tom's jacket split along the seams. "'What the—' William looked down at his hand. A nail stood out, blood running from the torn root. "'That hurt you, Brett, fuck!' Tom's voice rose in a manner which Hart had never heard before. "'I don't want a drink!' he screamed. "'Do you understand?' William's body swayed. His face looked dumb and brutal. Hart stared, fascinated and frightened that this beast lay beneath the reporter's pretension. "'You're gonna pay for that!' shouted William, still swaying. His eyes narrowed and he stared around the room. "'Just let me put my drink down and—' William's eyes fell on Hart, who smiled up ingratiatingly in the timeless manner of those to whom living is pleasing. "'Are you gonna stand for this shit?' demanded William. Are you married? No. Boy, you and me, we could go out and do some damage tonight. Paint this fucking town red, white, and blue. What do you say? I... Hart giggled. Tom scowled. Hart, I'll be in the lobby, all right. Without waiting for an answer, he turned and left the room. William took a step towards Hart. When was the last time you let a good one rip, boy? Shine that pretty face on the ladies. They'll topple like bowling pins. Hart smiled. I'm not much of a drinker. Who's talking about drinking? Let's go fuck. Hart's eyes widened. What? 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 What do you mean? Uh, I know places. One night out of your life. What do you say? To what? Ah, for God's sake. 
cried William, smacking his forehead. You're as pale as a goddamned albino. Get up. Let's go out for a little bit. Where? Where I take you, said William, grabbing Hart by the sleeve. Where memories are made. Things you never tell your grandchildren, but which put you in the earth with a smile on your face. Tom was fast asleep when the light came on. He had always been a light sleeper. His nervous system seemed to be forever scanning the spectrum of light and sound. Once, as a child, when his mother had come into his room to awaken him by taking his hand, he had felt certain that a spider was crawling on his palm and had jolted almost a foot off the bed. He felt all the unfair, supernatural irritation of those awoken suddenly but with just cause. "'Tom!' whispered a fearful voice. "'What? What?' stammered Tom, turning suddenly. Hart stood in the doorway, a hand covering one side of his face. His eyes were wide. Tom felt a slash of anger tearing open a bag of harsh words. "'What the hell happened to you?' "'Oh!' quavered Hart. "'I don't think I'm quite cut out for this kind of nightlife. What time is it?' Four. Jesus. Sit down. Are you, are you cut? No, just... Hart stepped forward, lowering his hand. His eye was ringed with black. His left cheek was mottled red and purple. His eye seemed full of blood. William? No, I lost track of him around two. Well, sit down. Do you... Is anyone at the front desk? Hart shook his head slightly. Tom wanted to shake it too, but harder. You need some ice. Let's at least wet a towel. He got out of bed, went into the bathroom, ran the corner of a towel under some cold water, then came back. Put this on your face. Lie back. He helped Hart lie down, then wrung the towel and placed it on Hart's mottled, freckled face. Tom yawned. Are you tired? Can you sleep? There was a pause. Hart's single, visible eye did not close. Tom brushed one of his friend's wet curls back from his forehead, then let his hand rest on the cold skin. "'You know,' said Hart, "'I'm trying to think, but I can't remember a single time "'when I've ever asked you for advice.' Mm "'Mm-hmm. "'I mean, (laughs) what problems have I ever had other than being me?' "'Were you you tonight?' Hart paused. (sighs) "'It doesn't matter.' I mean, what is wrong with me? That's, that stuff is all just what William likes to do. Hart's voice quavered. Why, why did I go? Why can't I say no? I'm like a goddamned Negro. Yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. The only spineless Welsh miner, a slave holding his own whip. Look, don't go into such a... No, I make myself sick. I'm such a cringing vermin. You like me because I worship you, because I do anything you say. Get my bag, return these books, there's a good chap. Come to France, translate. This isn't about us. Just tell me what happened if you think it will. It doesn't matter what happened. This is about me, Tom, about what's wrong with me. Oh, God, it's horrible. All I do is read people and give them what they want. A peaser, murmured Tom, more to himself than Hart. Hart almost smiled. That... That isn't the bad word. You make it sound. You... Look, just tell me you didn't do anything we're going to hear about in the morning. I don't know what's legal here or not. 
I smoked something, got giddy. My hands were very big and singing. We were at a flop house. All right, a whorehouse. Apparently they're big in the South. You know, I spend a lot of time scared of people and feel very small. But these people, these men there, but the women as well, were all utterly terrifying. It's about more than being beaten up. This is like a a tribe of the dead. The dead and killing. People kept joking. One thin man used very ornate language. Could you see your way, clear madam, to satisfying a little whim of mine, perchance, by sucking my dick until my forehead caves in? He was considered very witty. And some of them were very funny. Uh, one fat man who was about sixty used to be a burlesque dancer, and he stripped while everyone clapped. It was horrible. One of the girls who had young hair and an old face said, Oh, I have a love-hate relationship with everyone. They amuse me and I want to kill them. A man had brought his mother's panties for a girl to wear. They stuck their tongues out but said nothing. I, I can't imagine any of these people in daylight. They seem to live in a night that never ends. They wore lovely clothes but seemed unwashed. Their sweat was greasy. They laughed without end. I would hate to be bleeding to death among them. They would joke and joke and glance down and say, Well, we didn't ask you to bleed to death, did we? I can't imagine them as children. I hope they get reincarnated as their own pets. I think their parents must be drunken ghosts. I think... Tom pressed his hand down on Hart's forehead. Hart, my friend, you're rambling. Although raving was probably more accurate, Tom didn't want to alarm him. It was the girl said Hart instantly, his voice changing into something less insistent, less outraged, softer, more sorrowful. Everyone was mocking me for not going upstairs, he continued. Go upstairs, they said, and give it to Ethel in the downstairs. I don't know what that meant. So I went upstairs. I wasn't myself. I just wanted to talk. No, that's not true, he said, his voice breaking. Tom lowered his head. I wanted to make, to, to have, to fuck her. I've never done that. I don't know if I have a shell. I won't get married for years and years. I don't know. I don't have your talents. I don't, I didn't even know what I wanted to do, how to do it. And I pretended to be so sophisticated. I gave her some money. I didn't count it. Why, why, why would I want to look like a miser? And she was coarse. I suppose they were professional, you know. It wasn't the first time I'd thought of it, but I'd always hated the going-about-it business. But I've, when a waiter serves me my food, he makes me feel more at home. They're supposed to pretend to like you. Maybe there are different levels, and I got a bad waiter heart. I, I couldn't tell if she was liking it, and I got it wrong. I thought it was on top, you know, opposite the bum, and, and I was going on thinking maybe it was where it was supposed to be. And she laughed, called me an idiot. And now it's just something I have to get through, like a school marathon. I'll never be a runner, but I have to finish this race. I know, I know. I touch her breast, but she smacks my hands away and says, that's extra. And that made me, my heart chill. And, and to manage it somehow by thinking of other women. But it was worse than, you know, abusing myself. And she was making these sounds, not throaty sexy sounds but moans like i was hurting her 
And when I went to wash myself in the basin, there was red blood. I could tell even by the dim light. Do you know how dusty that light bulb was? Oh. And I thought that maybe she was menstruating, and the thought crossed my mind that I should get a discount, but she just stared at me and said, It's late at night, right at the end of my shift. Then she laughed and said, Or oh, did you think I was saving myself for you? And she cackled. Hmm, sighed Tom, trying to help Hart's breathing slow down by example. Oh, Tom, what have I done? You've made a terrible mistake, said Tom. Be gentle with yourself. You had something to learn, something which should have been taught but wasn't, and this was the manner in which you had to learn it, and it could have been a lot worse. How? How? Klaus has joined the Nazis. Klaus's. Under his own hand, Tom could feel wide muscles contracting along Hart's forehead. You're saying I could be a Nazi? Hart's voice strove for false outrage, but he could not sustain it. Well, he said after a moment, it was not a confession of fact, but an admission of possibility. You did not destroy this woman. She has not destroyed you. You tried to conform to the wishes of a corrupt man. You failed. Failed? Wailed Hart in despair. I was there! Are you going back? Asked Tom. There was a pause, not even broken by the sound of breathing. No, no, of course not. I'd pay good money to never go back. Then you have learned something important. Hart turned away. Tom let his hand trail along his friend's forehead to his sideburns. It was important to keep contact. Hart whispered, Please, please, please don't say anything about the foreign office now. I couldn't take it. Tom smiled, unseen. He paused for a moment, then said, Since you brought it up, Hart groaned. You all do well there. You're already an appeaser. Oh, don't joke. Tom pursed his lips. All right, all right. How about this? Do you think you're stronger than Reginald? Pause. Hart nodded under his towel. Don't fall asleep yet. You woke me up. Let's say that Hitler is stronger than William, and you are stronger than Reginald. Do you think he has a chance? Pause. Hart shook his head. Do you think I could get a position there? Hart shook his head. Of course you could. Just <laughs> tell Reginald you were here with me in Europe and that I am a lunatic and he was right all along and I was wrong all along and you want to help the FO to stop people like me from screwing up the course of world peace. You'll be in like Flynn. He'll name his firstborn son after you. But my doctorate... Oh, for Christ's sake! Snapped Tom, jerking his hand away. I swear to fucking God, you people make me insane! Hart turned around hurriedly. Tom had never spoken to him harshly before. What do you mean? Tom jumped up from the bed. Oh, you know! What? Some rat-eared fuck like William comes along and you kowtow to him. Whorehouse! Sure! Drugs! Sure! But I... An, an old friend who loves you 
comes along and you say, Oh, I need my doctorate to be a better Nazi. Tom, it's true. Whoever is the least rational around you gets your allegiance. Well, I'm sick and tired of it. I've always tried to be the nice fellow, the one who reasons and asks politely and always takes no for an answer. But that just means that all the driftwood of the world goes along with nastier current, with blind, stupid bastards like William who insist because they're evil. Good men don't insist. Evil men do nothing but insist. What is the result? Well, all the people who can't or won't decide for themselves follow the evil men. Don't you see? You follow him and resist me. Why? Why? Hart frowned, as if concentrating on a very abstract, very difficult problem. He did not seem to notice the tears which fell slowly from his one eye, like the endless dripping of a night tap. But if obedience is my problem, he said slowly, how do I solve it? By obeying you. I'm not asking you for obedience. I'm not asking you for a favor. Never think that of me. I am no dictator. I would never ask you to do something which was against your own self-interest. I'm not suggesting this to serve me alone at your expense. You're a young man. The danger we face is the gravest possible. Oxford will not vanish if we're wrong. You've seen France. The change in Germany is even worse. You are susceptible to evil. We have to see inside the foreign office. You can get information to Churchill which may avert another world war. You could be called up. You would have to kill or be killed. Millions of English women and children will die. The empire will disintegrate. Hitler is rearming. He, he faces no opposition. He has sworn to take over Eastern Europe. We cannot allow that. You know that English continental policy for the past thousand years has been to prevent any European power from gaining ascendancy, because we cannot stand alone against a power which rules Europe. It's happening, Hart. It will only take four months from your academics to investigate this, but it could mean the world. Not metaphorically, actually, the world, Hart, in your hands, your choice, this moment. Hart pulled his towel away, revealing all the gore of his hidden eye. Tears and blood mottled the wet whiteness of the cloth. He frowned, then grimaced in pain. I still feel that I am acceding to your wishes. No, said Tom softly, closing his eyes in relief. Submitting to reason is not personal. A ball does not submit to me when it falls from my hand to the ground, but to reality. To reality, heart. His voice broke. You are the best friend a man could have. Thanks, Tom. You, you are making me a better person. Against my will, but better anyway. Tom sat down on the bed, grinning and wiping his eyes. All right. All right. Now tell me what the hell happened to your eye. Hart smiled. It was his first real smile since coming to France. Well, he said, I asked for my money back, of course. The Great Debate The House recognizes Mr. Spencer. Q.S. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. 
It is certainly His Majesty's Government's position that our commitment to the League of Nations remains firm. However, my honourable independent colleague might prefer to tear up solemn treaties and chart his own course, regardless of history, honour and the public interest, it is not our intention to do so. Signor Mussolini has threatened Abyssinia throughout the summer and is massing his troops along the border. Abyssinia has asked for the help of the League of Nations, and the result of the deliberations of that august body has been twofold. First, it has imposed moral sanctions. Second, it has warned the Italian dictator that if he crosses the border into Abyssinia with hostile intent, the League will not hesitate to impose economic sanctions. Should all these events come to pass, then we have no doubt that the League will pursue the third option in its arsenal and consider entering the conflict on the side of the Abyssinians. So I find it hard to understand just what objections my honourable colleague has. The House recognises Mr. Churchill. W.C. My objections, Mr. Speaker, are such as should enter the mind of any man who considers the question of Italian aggression free of cant and sentimentality. Signor Mussolini is a dangerous man, with an army of more than a hundred thousand souls, bent on a malign foreign adventure aimed at winning him prestige at home. This situation is not unknown throughout history. In fact, it would seem, at times, as if history is composed of little else but these kinds of dangers. The choices we face are quite clear. We can either support Mussolini, support Abyssinia, or intervene to negotiate between the two. Now, however, you tell us that we have ceded the right to make these choices to the League of Nations. Very well. Let us turn our eyes to this beacon of collective security. Because negotiations have failed, the League has chosen to oppose Mussolini. They desire to cut Il Duce off from the materials of war. This is an admirable expression of international will, and the imposition of economic sanctions serves well to uphold the League's express purpose, for sanctions work best if all nations participate. Thus, I have only one real question. If we wish to impose sanctions to stop Mussolini's adventure, why have we excluded oil and coal from such sanctions? It certainly seems clear to me, and moment's thought will doubtless fix the fact in the mind of my colleague, that Mussolini can scarcely pursue a desert war against Abyssinia without foreign oil. If we have ceded our independent judgment to an international body, then let us at least agitate for it to pursue its mandate in an effective manner. I, for one, have great anxiety over these sanctions. I prophesy that they shall do little more than irritate Signor Mussolini without stopping him. We shall reveal ourselves as lacking the strength and resolution to tear his hands from the throat of Abyssinia. I submit, most humbly, Mr. Speaker, that this is not an efficacious plan. In conflict, one must either refrain from striking or strike to kill. In this instance, we are merely waving a red flag at a stomping bull, 
while lacking the means to either oppose it or get out of the way. And who shall say where this path shall lead? If we alienate the Italians from us, where else shall they turn in Europe for companionship? Certainly Signor Mussolini has more in common with Herr Hitler than he has with us. Both are virile, active, self-made, and ruthless men. Both hold the seats of ancient civilizations in grips of steel. Neither man brooks competition. Both are expansionist, and both are watching the other. For be sure of one thing, even if we do not hold Signor Mussolini as much of a threat, let us remember that Herr Hitler is doubtless casting his eyes to the Mediterranean even as we speak, seeing just how this test of international resolution will go. If we let Signor Mussolini win, and also drive him into the arms of his fellow dictator in Berlin, then we shall surely have gotten the worst of both sides. We shall have made enemies without making them fear us, and we shall have created one unified foe, where before we had two divided. And I think that, should that be allowed to occur, it shall be recorded for a thousand years that this was the time when His Majesty's government put personal ambition and petty politics before the security and welfare of this great nation, and many shall be the generations who will rue that choice and curse our names. Jeers. Cat calls. The speaker recognizes Mr. Spencer. Q.S. As always, our honorable colleague both entertains and horrifies us with his apocalyptic views of the situation. However impressive is his speech and passion, and there are times when I am almost carried away by his rhetoric myself and expect a burning bush to appear in our midst, I am afraid that I shall be forced to return us to earth. As this house well knows, we are part of an international body called the League of Nations, and it is this League which has, after a great deal of debate, decided not to include certain materials in its sanctions against Italy. The exclusion of these materials may offend our honourable colleague, in which case he is more than welcome to take some time to visit the League in Geneva and make his case there, and take his time in returning. The truth of the matter, however, is that this decision was made by the League as a whole, and no matter how distasteful our colleague finds the operations of democracy, he is bound, by his position in this house, if not by morality and logic as a whole, to accept them. Asking this government to take a position against the League of Nations, which is supported by our own foreign office, is to demand that we operate utterly outside our mandate. And as such, I consider the matter closed. The Speaker recognizes Mr. Churchill. W.C. I wish to thank my honorable colleague, now into his fourth year as an oft-absent parliamentarian, for the lesson on the limits of our government. As a member since 1900, I always find it helpful to be instructed by newcomers. But I have another question for His Majesty's government. It has to do with rearmament. Jeers. Cat calls. W.C. I shall be allowed my say. Mr. Speaker, as this House well knows, last year the Prime Minister made a solemn pledge to retain air parity with every major power within striking distance of our shores. 
Now Herr Hitler himself has told our foreign secretary, Anthony Eden, that in March of this year he achieved air parity with England. And now, six months later, we can be sure that Herr Hitler has found it in his means to pull ahead of us. I have reliable estimates here in my hand that places German air power in clear superiority to our own in numbers, modernity, and efficiency. I now call upon His Majesty's government to tell us just what they are doing to fulfill their solemn vow. Are we to get more armament spending? Are we to expand the number of new hurricanes and spitfires to be delivered to our gallant pilots? Do plans exist to expand the number of airfields? Have recruiting calls gone out to young British men? I await your answer. The speaker recognises Mr. Stanley Baldwin. S.B. I thank the Right Honourable Mr. Churchill for his question. This goes to the heart of national security and must not be overlooked. This government is strongly committed to the defence of both our island and our empire. We have looked long and hard at the developing situations in Europe and confess that our hearts are not at complete ease. We have devoted considerable efforts to determining the true strengths of our potential enemies. This is a most difficult task, which I am sure most members of this House can appreciate. Germany does not allow us to wander its lands with notepads and cameras. We must rely on a wide variety of sources— now some of these sources tell a story quite similar to the one quoted by the Honourable Member from Epping. However, some tell a story in quite the opposite direction. I have, myself, personally seen reports which estimate that Germany possesses anything from half our air power to slightly above parity. Now were I the master of infinite resources, or were I some sort of economic czar, as we see in the Soviet Union, I should not hesitate— to pour millions more into rearmament. However, two qualifications must be made to that potentiality. First and foremost, we are only now just recovering from a devastating economic depression and do not have the money to spend on arms. Second, but only slightly less important, it has not escaped our attention that the current mood of the British people is not in favour of rearmament. Were we to plough on, regardless of the public will, we should doubtless find it hard to retain our position in this house, and may perhaps watch a government be formed, a Labour government, say, which might be more in favour of unilateral disarmament, and which might place its entire trust in the bosom of that league which the honourable member opposite finds so distasteful. Applause. Cheers. The speaker recognises Mr. Churchill. W.C. I find it hard to trust my ears. Please just give me a moment. All right. In my long, long years in this house, I have grown inured to the inevitable art of the non-answer. But I confess myself to be astounded almost beyond words at the confessions of the Honorable Prime Minister. I am certain that my memory is correct, and I shall personally check the Hansard archives to be sure that last year the Prime Minister did not promise British air parity if I think we can afford it. He also did not promise air parity unless the public believes otherwise. The public has spoken, sir. 
by placing you and your expertise at the helm. The public are civilians, sir, and have not the time, inclination, expertise, or information to study such complex matters as the European balance of powers, the motives and nature of our enemies, and the best methods of securing our defense. To achieve their defense, which is surely the first and final duty of every government the world over, they have placed you in command. They have given you grave powers in the trust that you will do what is right. It may be that certain members of society believe that we can effectively deal with the new dictator nations by remaining disarmed, but that is not the truth of the situation, neither now nor at any time in history. Can we imagine what would have happened in 1914 if we had approached the German Kaiser with nothing but our naked selves and a trembling olive branch? Leave turning the other cheek to the Bible, sir. It has no place in a house of government. Yet to hear a prime minister of this country declare openly that he will not strive to defend the citizens who have so entrusted him because he might lose an election is staggering beyond words. You were not sent here, sir, to secure elections, but to serve and protect the British people. Our own army chiefs have said that war may come in as little as five years, and that Germany is likely to be our chief enemy. You yourself have pledged to protect us from our enemies by securing air parity with all countries within striking distance of our shores. We have strong evidence that our parity has been lost. I ask you what you intend to do about this grave weakness, a weakness which, given our open society, is in full view of the world, and you reply with vague opinions, a plea of financial constraint, and an appeal to the prejudices of certain constituents. What purpose, pray tell, would it serve these same constituents if you present their new Nazi government with a balanced budget? Jeers, catcalls, complaints. W.C. I humbly apologize for my last remarks, Mr. Speaker. I feel as if I am trapped in some terrible, monstrous dream where we attempt to arrest an onrushing train with pious platitudes. I let my passions get the better of my good sense and withdraw my remarks. <laughs>